Hello, I'm Dr. Jan Patterson, Professor of Medicine Infectious Diseases at the Long School of Medicine, UT Health San Antonio. And welcome to our COVID Minutes podcast series from our Office of Continuing Medical Education. Our goal is to bring you insights and updates on COVID-19 from experts who have been and continue to be very involved in the COVID response. These on-demand podcasts are aimed at healthcare professionals and are ideal for clinicians on the go and others who want to stay up to date. Today's topic is COVID cardiology, and our guest is Dr. Alan Anderson, who has recently assumed the role of the Chief of the Cardiology Division and Professor of Medicine here at UT Health San Antonio. He's a specialist in heart failure and cardiomyopathy. Dr. Anderson has been very involved in our COVID response here and um, COVID can cause a lot of cardiovascular disease. So Alan, welcome. Thank you very much, Jan. Uh, wonderful to be here. Well, it's July, COVID is still here. And although the numbers are lower than in the winter, we're seeing this Delta variant, which is much more transmissible, causing mischief uh, around the country. We're starting to see some increases here locally again and spots around the country are even seeing surges. So right. uh, it's clear COVID is not over. And uh, it's also clear that COVID has a lot of uh, cardiovascular complications. So tell us what kind of complications do you see from COVID? Yes, absolutely. Well, I think that one of the unique things about this virus we saw early on was the plethora of cardiovascular complications. In the original series, it was as high as 20, 22%. We're now seeing probably ranges in the 15% for a variety of different types of cardiovascular complications. What's interesting about this virus is all the different ways it affects the heart. Uh, COVID, like other viruses, other respiratory viruses, can cause a myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart that can lead to heart muscle dysfunction uh, and even to severe heart muscle dysfunction, cardiogenic shock. So that's one manifestation. Short of that or more mild cases of myocarditis, the long-term effects of which are not totally clear, but don't seem to be profoundly serious. Uh, because of its uh, propensity to cause hypercoagulation and also apparently because of some of the effects of the virus uh, on the endothelium of the blood vessels, we see an increase in acute myocardial infarction in patients with COVID. This was also seen interestingly with other viruses like influenza, but it's, it, I think it, and our estimations are it's far more common with COVID than we once saw. Uh, we will also see stress-induced cardiomyopathies, which I think are a manifestation of illness, so that so-called Takasubo's variant. Arrhythmias are relatively common. They can be anything from benign atrial dysrhythmias to more profound ventricular tachycardias, which when they occur, it makes us think that there's something else going on. Perhaps there is, it, perhaps this is a marker of myocarditis or of ischemia. And of course, we see all sorts of thrombosis. We see coronary thrombosis, but we also see pulmonary embolism deep venous thromboses. And in the hospitalized sick patients, this can be quite prevalent. This can be as high as 20% of patients. And as you know, we screen for this and actively treat 
uh, prevent it. This is something that we've seen all along. Yes, we are uh, seeing those thrombotic complications a lot. We um, had a patient just this last week with multiple uh, clots that really could not be controlled. Um, so what, uh, what kind of things um, are we doing to prevent uh, these clots? And right. what, what can we do when they do occur? Right. Well, I think we've, we learned early on that we should at least do some screening uh, for patients who seem to be in a pro-inflammatory state and perhaps at risk for thrombus measuring the dimers and the like. And when we see this evidence of active inflammation, uh, we treat with systemic anticoagulation, typically with full dose heparin to achieve systemic anticoagulation. I think uh, on the clinical side, we're much quicker to screen patients for deep venous thromboses, both upper and lower extremities and are quick to treat those when we find them. And I think we would be more aggressive about treating them in a COVID patient than we might in a non-COVID patient. So even outside what we would consider the normal indications for treating a lower extremity uh, venous thrombosis, for instance. And certainly if we see cardiovascular complications, then we're very quick to anticoagulate. It's really a problem with acute myocardial infarction because we, we find that we, of course, typically when we're doing PCIs, we'll use high dose heparin at the time of the procedure. And then we tend to stop that anticoagulation now to avoid complications with access, et cetera. And we're finding that patients can develop thrombosis hours after their successful PCI. And so we have to be much more attuned to that. So we see reinfarction. This is not a complication of the PCI so much as a complication of the pro-inflammatory state and the pro-hypercoagulable state of COVID. Yes, that's been quite a problem with COVID. Now, as you know, um, there's been this vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia syndrome, uh, an unusual clotting syndrome after the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, a viral vector vaccine. And this has also been detected in the AstraZeneca vaccine, also a viral vector vaccine, which is used in the UK and other countries. Um, but it's very rare. And uh, after the J&J &J vaccine, it seems to be around three to four per million doses. Uh, but you mentioned that the risk of thrombosis with COVID is around 20%. That's right, right. And again, I think there's a common theme here that you and I both know is that pick any of the complications associated with vaccination. And the risk of those complications pales in comparison to the risk of actual infection and disease, right? All of the complications that we see with COVID disease are orders of magnitude greater than the risks that we see associated with the vaccination. Uh, and, yes, so, and, and you mentioned myocarditis um, because this right. has been in the news lately because as the um, campaign to vaccinate uh, younger people has progressed, there have been reports of myocarditis in uh, young men, 16 to 24, after the mRNA oh. vaccine. Um, but the risk, again, is in the range of 0.005%. What is the risk of myocarditis with COVID disease? 
Right. So we see uh, risks of myocarditis in the one to 10% range. Uh, and it can be quite variable. That's the, <clears throat> you can have people who have asymptomatic myocarditis. Take a step back a minute and realize that myocarditis in general is a more common disease process than we realize. And this was one of the problems with trying to tease out the incidence and young people getting COVID vaccinations because it's well known that it, particularly in the young population, there's a defined incidence of myocarditis. Most of it comes from respiratory viruses. Much, much of it is never recognized and occasionally it results in profound cardiac dysfunction. So that's baseline, forget COVID. So we know that that's a disease process that has some prevalence now it's not really known exactly what the prevalence is. <clears throat> it's you know a few cases in 100,000 uh, to a few cases in 10,000. And again, many of them are asymptomatic, so we really don't know how much more common they are. Uh, when you look at COVID, the risk of myocarditis from COVID is substantially greater than what we see from the other uh, respiratory viruses. Uh, that was the observation, and that's, symptomatic myocarditis is defined by an elevated troponin. Uh, and we'll see elevated troponins and we can see them in as high as 10% of patients who have active COVID infection. So it's uh, again, orders of magnitude, a hundred, a thousand, 10,000 times more, uh, more prevalent uh, in the actual disease process than as a complication of the vaccination. Now, what do we know about the mechanism of heart injury? You mentioned that there's right. a lot of different complications. So yeah, so it's it's really very interesting. And uh, some of my basic science colleagues here, Dr. Madesh Munaswamy, did has done some work in this area, uh, and it's really quite interesting. There is evidence. There's evidence that uh, the virus stimulates the immune system, so you get an you can get an autoimmune type myocarditis. So that's an antibody mediated process directed against components of the myocyte. You can see direct uh, infection of the myocyte by the virus. That's been documented. It probably is not super super common, but it can happen. You can also see that the virus can invade and co-opt the mitochondrial works, uh, mechanisms, uh, and integrate itself and begin to utilize the mitochondrial. Remember, there's mitochondrial DNA and it can incorporate there and co-opt the uh, work of the cellular organelles. So we see those as direct myocardial effects. Uh, then we also see endothelial effects. The virus tends to activate the endothelial system. This is probably part of the component of inflammation that we see and inflammation obviously also plays a role in endothelial dysfunction. And then finally, when it comes to the hypercoagulable states, a couple of interesting observations are that um, the virus may interact with PI-1, which is one of the principal mechanisms for uh, down-regulating the thrombolytic 
cascade. And so by, by inhibiting there, you, you may, by inhibiting the PI1 inhibitor, the PI inhibitor, uh, you may see more thrombosis. So we've got, there's several, there are four or five at least, and I've sort of highlighted the mechanisms for how this virus can affect the cardiovascular system. So you mentioned that um, you see elevated troponins and um, I suppose with some of these types of injury, of course, you also see changes on echo. Um, right. What about, what changes do you see on echo or with cardiac um, magnetic resonance? Or are we looking right. at cases with, with those technologies? Sure. So we, again, patients may have or may not have chest pain. They can experience pericarditis, which has a typical presentation of uh, uh, pleuritic type or pericardial type pain worse when you sit up, or excuse me, worse when you lay down, better when you sit up. If they're elevated troponins, then we call that myocarditis if they've got pain and elevated troponins is mild pericarditis. Uh, and so that's our first clue. With echocardiography, we may see global dysfunction of the right ventricle, left ventricle, or both. Uh, we can see regional wall motion abnormalities uh, uh, as well. We could see a pericardial effusion. That's more than just a trivial pericardial effusion. If there's profound myocarditis, you can also see increased wall thickness of the ventricle due to inflammation. So those are the echo findings. Cardiac MRI is an incredibly useful tool to evaluate for the presence of active inflammation or previous uh, inflammation in the heart. We do cardiac MRI with gadolinium uh, contrast, and we see several things. We can see late gadolinium enhancement that suggests previous inflammation or scar. We can see increase in extracellular volume uh, in, the in the myocardium that is consistent with, with active inflammation. And of course, on MR, we can also see regional wall motion abnormalities. We can assess global function. What we typically look for are evidence of late gadolinium enhancement uh, and or changes in extracellular volume that would suggest the presence of active inflammation. Now, um, are you seeing these cardiovascular complications in people with, that already have heart disease or at risk for heart disease? Or do you see them in otherwise healthy people as well? Yeah, that's a really good question. And early on, we recognized that there were certain risk factors for doing poorly with COVID. Uh, if you had previous cardiovascular or had underlying cardiovascular disease, hypertension, coronary disease, or other metabolic diseases like diabetes, that you had an increased risk for doing poorly, even dying. And so that's well described. We've seen that all along. But I think one of the things that we were struck by early on, and certainly with the second and third surges, is that young people get this as well. And young people die uh, quite readily from the complications of this disease. So it does not respect age. It does not respect robustness of health or, or fitness uh, when it comes to affecting morbidity and mortality. Now, um, what do we know about long-term effects? I mean, I, I guess we don't know completely yet, but um, you know, a year and a half into this, what, what do we know about long-term effects on the heart? Right. Well, 
the, the concern initially was, gee, if you've got all of these people getting myocarditis, then are we going to see a surge in late ventricular dysfunction, late development of, of heart failure syndromes because of the damage to the heart from the virus? Because our perception historically has been that these are late complications of other types of myocarditis. So one of the things that's clear is that it is the case that many people who we screen, who young people, for instance, who have COVID, athletes, athletes are a really good example because, because of the concern about myocarditis and the restrictions on exercise for six months after the diagnosis of myocarditis, there was a lot of requirement to screen athletes at all levels. We did it here at the collegiate level but also at the professional level, because there was a concern that we might be missing occult myocarditis that would lead to bad outcomes in exercising athletes, both collegiate and elite. Fortunately, what we've seen from the studies that have been published so far is that the incidence of myocarditis in these people who had mild symptoms or didn't even know they had COVID, only found out when they had some sort of screening, was that the incidence of myocarditis is pretty low in that population and they don't seem to have a lot of long-term effects. So I would say for patients who are mildly affected, I think the likelihood of long-term adverse cardiovascular effects seem to be pretty low. If you had a more serious case or you had obvious myocarditis or some other obvious cardiovascular complication like an MI, if you had an MI or a heart attack, you're going to, your prognosis is gonna be driven by the MR, MI more than COVID. For patients with myocarditis, I think the, the long-term outcome is a little bit unclear. I'm more optimistic about, about favorable outcomes than I used to be, but I think time will tell. Though We don't quite yet know. It's, but I'm of the, position that I'd much rather prevent myself from getting this infection than worried about the long-term effects if I get it, even a mild case of it. Right. Okay. So, um, so as you know, uh, we've done pretty well with vaccination here in San Antonio. Um, we're uh, close to 70% of adults uh, having at least one dose, but of course that second dose is going to be important fighting the Delta variant and there's still 30% or so of adults not vaccinated, many of those young people. Any advice for them? Yeah, I, it's, it's a very good question. And as a person who was here in San Antonio, who isolated, I was potted with a, a group of non-medical people. I sort of watched the daily anxiety associated with being exposed or trying to avoid exposure to this disease. It is a very real disease process. It is out there. It is concerning to me that uh, we know that our sort of nationwide, our vaccination rates are really too low to prevent a lot of, to prevent continued spread. And the way that I have always looked at this is uh, I don't, in the overall scheme of things, if I could get COVID and knew, know that nothing bad was going to happen to me, 
I could live with getting COVID. The problem is, is that people die from COVID and people die unpredictably from COVID. And even some people have long-term adverse effects from COVID. And we look at ourselves and say, gee, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had something that could prevent this? And, you know, wouldn't it be just obvious that we should use it? Well, guess what we do? We do have something. It's pretty clear that once you're vaccinated, your likelihood of dying from COVID is pretty darn low. Yeah, you know, with some of the variants, right? You can still get it, but you don't die from it. And we remarkably, at no other point in history have we been in the position where we went from a disease killing thousands of people to having a ready treatment for it that works with quite frankly, a dramatically low incidence of side effects. There's, there's nothing zero in this world, right? There's nothing that we do that has no risk associated with it. You know, you, we get in our car and drive to work every day and our risk of being in a car accident and dying is far greater than our risk of complications from a vaccine, yet we don't stop driving. Right. I think so that's we have a solution. Yeah, we really have a solution. And it's I think it's really important uh, for us to try to, to continue to carry the message that we have a solution for this problem. Everybody loves being out. I, I don't know about you. I love the feeling of being able to get out and not be so fearful uh, and not have to wear a mask everywhere I go under every circumstances, but I'm still very careful. And we're gonna, we're going, I'm concerned that we're going to have to take steps backwards if we don't get more people vaccinated. And as physicians, we're gonna be taking care of sick people in the hospital, sicknesses that could have been prevented, which I think is the most frustrating thing. Yes, I agree with you. Um, you know, we're, we're, we are, um, we have about 30 patients in our hospital right now, which is double from a couple of weeks ago. Our community positivity rate is a little over 5% and it was, uh, you know, less than 2% a couple of weeks ago. So yeah, we're concerned and, you know, we're fortunate in this country that these vaccines have allowed us to travel again to you know, be freer uh, with uh, in society than we have been for the last year and a half. And so um, we're also fortunate to have um, enough vaccine for everyone. Right. So, um, you know, I, I hope that more people will take advantage of that. And I agree with your assessment. <laughs> so. so, well, it's, it's uh, you know, it, we live as physicians, we're accustomed to living in a world of uncertainty. There is no, no decision that we make, almost no decision that we make, that we are a hundred, that we know with a hundred percent certainty we're right. Uh, and, or, or that we make a diagnosis and with a hundred percent certainty we're right. There's always something else out there. And so there's a certain degree of uncertainty we're comfortable with that I recognize that many others are not. And this is why I think it's important that we try to characterize, the, try to put the risks into a context that is meaningful to people in their everyday life. Agree, and you've, you've done that well. So uh, thank you, Dr. Anderson, for joining us on COVID Minutes today. Thank you.